Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome back. Again. Again. We're happy to be here. Today we're going to be talking about the Laura Bradbury case, which it's funny because we did do, we did a case on Joshua Tree National Park and this case happens in that same park, but I had never heard of it, which is crazy because it's a crazy case, but I came across this article about Michael Bradbury, who we're going to talk about when we get into the case. So I came across this article and started digging into the case like I tend to do. I wanted to read his book, but I couldn't. And I felt like we just had to do it. It's crazy. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Ayers Rock case that we did. And you'll kind of understand why, but there's conspiracy, confusion, a lot of things going on here. So we'll just get into it. This is the case of Laura Bradbury. She was three and a half years old. I know. Kids are so rough. It's so rough. So on October 18, 1984, she disappeared from Indian Cove Campground in Joshua Tree National Park. Indian Cove Campground has huge rocks that attracts a lot of climbers. There's a lot of small hiking trails around it, and it's a great place to car camp, and it's very crowded. Yeah, it has a lot of easy trails, so it brings in families, but then it also brings in those people who want the challenge of the rocks. If you look at pictures of this place, they almost look fake. Like, these rocks are these huge boulders everywhere, and they look absolutely fake. Hmm. It's pretty cool, though. I kind of want to climb on one. But Laura Bradbury was there camping with her family, so it was her mom, Patty, her dad, Michael, her older brother, Travis, who was eight, and her infant sister, Emily. And I couldn't actually find an age on Emily, but she was young. I think like under one. Okay, so Laura's three and a half, as said before. She has blonde hair and blue eyes, and her hair was cut to look like Mary Lou Renton, whoever. So she was an Olympic star in 1984. She had this very distinct haircut. It was kind of like her bangs were like cut across, and then it kind of just went back to be a little longer. But it was, it looked like a wig kind of, but it, it was a thing. A lot of... Little girls had this haircut. Okay, she so was, she was, like, idolized. She, by... Yeah, and okay. and this was somebody that Laura liked to watch and did idolize her, So, which okay. is super cute for a three-year-old. So an interesting fact about her grandpa, he was a Disney cartoonist, actually. Yeah, and she also had a cousin, Ricky Schroeder, who was a child actor and played in the TV show Silver Spoons, which I haven't seen but I know was popular back in the day. Interesting. That's yeah. cool. Disney Just kind of, kind of weird random facts i don't know so her mom patty was quiet solid and deeply religious she married mike in 1969 her dad mike was wilder and she seemed to calm him years after they married they actually moved from alaska to orange county they were flush with cash from their gold jewelry business in alaska and once in orange county mike started repairing wicker furniture which i think is a very strange transition but maybe it's all he could find at the time i'm not sure why they chose orange county but maybe just getting out of alaska was really important to them i don't know i kind of want to live in alaska for a little bit just to the season the the whole midnight sun thing i want to see it I, I know i think that's so cool i mean maybe just for like a year yeah just I, for like a year I could like do it not for a long a year. time yeah. But, like, at least a little, like, at least, like, a good amount of time to experience all their seasons because how cool is it that it just sometimes just doesn't get light? It's, like, it's just dark. It's just It's dark. amazing. It's amazing. By 1984, they were a family of five. 
They were camping that weekend at Joshua Tree National Park, which always brought them solace and gave them an opportunity to stretch out under the stars because they did live in a two-bedroom condo. This was something that they had done before. They had been to this park before. They had camped there before. Yep. Nothing new for them. Like I said, it was really hard. I had never heard of this case, and it was actually really hard to find information about it. And I kind of got lucky when I found an article that was done in 2010 by the Los Angeles Times. And it was an article where Michael, the dad, gives his account. And I think it was the interview that he gave after his book was published because he wrote a book about this in 2010. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the information that I was able to find came from this article or similar articles because I was unable to read the book. Mike says that as the sun was setting, he was hurrying to try to put up the family tent. So while this is happening, he heard his young son, Travis, the eight-year-old, say, I have to go to the bathroom. And then his mom, Patty, directing him to the porta potty or portable. To- Everybody calls it a portable toilet. We call them porta potties here. I don't know. It's a, like a porta potty that's on at the campsite for campers to use because it's a really popular campsite. And of course, as he left for the porta potty, his little sister, Laura, was paddling after him as always. So she followed her big brother around. This was a very normal thing. Nobody really thought anything of it. Laura had been kind of groggy and kind of tired from their long drive from their condominium into Huntington Beach was about 137 miles, which would have taken them about three hours with no traffic. And I'm assuming that there was probably traffic. So like we said, Travis headed to the porta potty with Laura trailing behind. She was wearing lavender cotton pants and a green sweatshirt. She was also wearing rainbow colored flip flops. Sounds like a three year old outfit. I know, right? He left Laura outside while he went to the bathroom. Yeah, and there's a lot of speculation about why didn't he take her into the porta potty with him. But you guys, the bathrooms are so small at these campsites, at least the ones that we've seen. When you're an eight-year-old and, like... You're also eight. And your little sister who's younger than you, like, wants to go, and you're like, no, just wait outside for me. Well, right, and if he did take her in, I mean, this would be really tight quarters. This was not a luxurious, big bathroom yeah it's this teeny tiny little porta potty so and then when he came out she was gone michael tried listening for his children but the wind made it hard to hear yeah so as he's like setting up he's like listening for them to come back kind of but it was really windy that day and so he couldn't actually hear them so then travis wanders back to the campsite kind of confused that his sister wasn't already there Because he assumed when he came out of the bathroom that she just went back to the campsite. Because it's not far from the porta potty. Yeah. Travis asks, where's Laura? And at that point, Mike's heart begins to race immediately. Laura's not the kind of child that would wander off. She sticks close to family. Which also with that, people are like, oh, well, all three-year-olds wander off. All little kids wander off. But like, I can't imagine my little sister, who's five... And even when she was three, her wandering off anywhere. She would prefer to be touching or holding a family member, especially if we're in public or in a new place. Yeah. So Mike immediately sprinted towards the porta potty. His wife was close behind. She was holding their infant daughter. And they were both yelling, Laura, where are you? As they're running, trying to find their daughter. Right. And I don't really think this is an overreaction. I would react 100% the same way. Actually, the last time we went backpacking when it was just me and the kids... At one point, Phoenix wandered off with one of the other girls, but I didn't know that she was with one of the other girls. And I was like, where's Phoenix? And Maddie was like, I don't know. She was just right here. 
And I kind of felt that immediate panic. And then I realized one of the other kids was gone. I called for them. They were like, yeah, we're over here. But I would immediately panic. No, it panic. was straight panic. It was straight panic. It was like, where's Banks? Where are you? Okay, I might have overreacted a tiny no, bit. No, it, it might have been a little <laughs> bit of an overreaction, but it was. But you know your kid. And when you know that they wouldn't wander off, that yeah. is a scary moment. Park rangers arrive first and then deputies, and then the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department. Then the men with the bloodhound showed up. So a massive search ensued pretty quickly. It's getting late, you guys. There's a little girl missing, and she cannot immediately be found in the area. Like, yeah. this is cause for serious concern. They found what appeared to be Laura's flip-flop prints in the sand. So here's where things get a little controversial I guess so in almost every report that I read which these are just news reports and it's magazines news articles all regurgitating the same information right they all say that the bloodhounds followed her scent and these footprints for two miles the father and this article that I found that was done in 2010 says that and I found this in one other place too says that they arced away from the bathroom and back towards the campsite, but then they curved and headed for the road and disappeared. What this article says is that the bloodhounds followed her scent, not her foot, which bloodhounds wouldn't be following footprints anyway. But they're saying that the dogs followed her scent for two miles, but the flip-flops were only in the area of the campground and disappeared at the road. Either her footprints went for two miles or her scent went for two miles. Either way, we're not 100% sure. I could not find actual verification of this, but I tend to think that the dogs followed her scent and the flip-flop trail ended in that area. Yeah. Personally. Because even if she's being carried away, dogs would still follow that scent, right? But if she's a three-year-old walking at a three-year-old pace for two miles, I feel like somebody would have seen her heading in that direction or caught up with her at some point. Yeah. So like I said, the dogs followed her scent for two miles and then they just lost it. Witnesses at the campsite, because remember, we are at a crowded campsite, you guys. Witnesses, multiple witnesses, had seen a man in his 50s who had a beard and a pot belly. He had a metallic blue van at the campground shortly before Laura went missing. A similar looking man was also seen at Burns Canyon a few hours later. After three days, the official search was called off. This is the large scale search that's called off after three days, which usually ends after the amount of time that one could survive on their own, right? That doesn't mean they stop searching at this point. They just call off the big hundreds of people search that's currently Mm -hmm. going on so it seemed that police believed that she had been kidnapped from the campground which looks pretty likely to me i I think that at at this point in the game that sounds like the most likely scenario Mm -hmm. to me as well especially if the flip-flops curved around and ended at the road there okay searching still continues for weeks the family stays in a donated rv at this time yep because they don't want to leave the campground The family continued on. They distributed millions of flyers. They even handed out t-shirts with her picture, bumper stickers, and supermarket shopping bags. They appeared on radio, television. There were even multiple reenactments played across the news 
There was a hotline established. She was one of the first kids actually featured on a milk carton. Yeah, so the milk cartons were circulated starting in February of 1985. So I think the very first two milk carton kids was Johnny Gosh and Ethan Patz. And that was in 1984 when shoppers went into the store to buy their milk in Des Moines, Iowa. They started to see these. This was before we had the internet. Amber Alerts actually replaced this program when they came out. Mm -hmm. Johnny was the little boy who went missing during his paper route. And Ethan disappeared while walking to the bus stop for the first time. And both of these cases were highly publicized back in the day. And when I say highly publicized, as much as they could be at the time. At the time, yeah. Yeah. Please even tried hypnotizing some of the campers to see if they could get more details out of them. Yeah. And we see this from time to time, right? This doesn't mean... I think sometimes a department is just like, what else can we do? We have tried everything to find this little girl. What else can we do? And they have all these witnesses that might have seen something, but nobody seems to really remember much. So Michael Bradbury remained at the campsite for more than three weeks. He at first aided in the search, and then he maintained a lonely vigil by himself when the rest of the searchers disappeared. So lots of people were interviewed, several sex offenders were arrested on other charges as a result of this investigation, actually. Yeah, and we saw that in the Delphi case last week, where all of these tips started leading to... A bunch of people getting arrested. A bunch of people getting arrested. So that kind of happened here, too, right? You go and you check on a sex offender, they're violating their parole, they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing, and might as well get you off the street while we're at it. Over the next several months, the case attracted a lot of attention... An extensive volunteer network was organized throughout Southern California. Many businesses contributed cash and services to help aid in the search. I mean, I think everybody wants to see a three-year-old girl returned home. And I think that the general consensus at this point is that she was kidnapped and they need to find her. Yeah. So on several occasions, the police believed that they were really close to finding her. At one point, they took a Pasadena woman into custody because her daughter looked so much like Laura. You guys, they actually had to bring Laura's dad in to the police station to determine whether or not it was her because they were that convinced that this little girl was Laura. It wasn't. It wasn't. But can you imagine having police come up to you and think that you kidnapped the child, that you, your child that you have with you? I can't even imagine that. Traumatizing all around. And for the dad to get his hopes up. So a seven-member task force was created by the Sheriff's Department and was led by Captain Gene Bowling. The investigation is said to cost over $1 million. Yep. It does sound like they were really trying. However, the family does grow very frustrated with law enforcement, and we're going to kind of talk about that here in a second. The family also offered a no-questions-asked $25,000 reward, the safe return of their daughter. Mm Mm-mm. So, like I said, Laura's dad was growing very frustrated with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department for their lack of effort or results from his end, right? He told reporters that the department was incompetent or lazy or both, and he even implied that they may be covering something up, and he hired his own private investigator. So, we saw this as well with the Delphi case last week, where... People started to believe that the police department was covering up for the murder. Like, they knew who he was and they were covering it up. And I kind of feel the same way about this one that I felt about that one, where I just don't see 
any member of a police department covering up for somebody that would kidnap or take a three-year-old little girl. Yeah. Personally. But I can understand the frustration from a parent's perspective when you're not seeing results. So the department actually countered this, saying that they were doing everything that they could. And they even said that Mike was kind of a nuisance and maybe even a hindrance. So they said, we're putting everything we had into this. And he was out there starting to put together all sorts of different scenarios based on bits of information that were not true. So to our minds, he was getting in the way of the investigation. So he feels like they're not doing enough. He's going out, digging up his own leads, his own tips, his own clues. And then he's getting frustrated because the police department is like, that's not a real lead. Stop doing that. Stop interviewing people. You know, so Mm -hmm. I think it's just two different groups of people wanting the same thing, but butting heads in the process. There were two witnesses named Clifford and Toby. And by the way, we're not pronouncing their last names because they're a little tricky. I'm not doing it. I say no. Come for me if you want. I'm not doing it. You can look it up yourself. So they came forward saying they had information on a man that they believe had kidnapped Laura. So police found this tip to not be credible. Not long after, both men were found shot to death. Their bodies were found six miles from where Laura was last seen. So I think this is the beginning of conspiracy land. And we're going to have a lot of conspiracies in this case, but this comes up later too. In 1985, a man named Jim Nestor actually vanished while looking for Laura, and his skull was later found in 1988. But no cause of death was determined. So Christmas morning, 1985, Patty writes a letter to Laura. This is what it says. I send this letter to you with love and prayer, my first baby girl. There is a hole in our life now. Life was perfect for us, but now it seems hollow. I sometimes feel guilty in continuing at all. I get so angry that you're missing seeing Emily grow and you're missing your play with Travis. I wonder if you'll have a stocking when you wake. Another Christmas gone, cheated from sharing it with you. God, please protect her. Give her Christmas. God, return our Laura. Make our family complete again. Laura, I love you. Please don't forget me. Mommy. So a storefront center was established and a hotline was set up. It was called Laura Center. Eventually, this got expanded into concern for all children. Yeah, so it continued on even after this. In March 1986, around 6 p.m., a skull and other remains were found by hikers. So it was a husband and wife that had found these remains. The remains were near the west entrance of the park, only two miles from the family's campsite, DNA tests were inconclusive. Blood type or gender could also not be confirmed, but they were certain that the remains belonged to a child. The family was immediately contacted due to the proximity of their campsite. Yeah, and you guys, they actually, at the time that they were contacted, they were on their first family vacation since Laura had gone missing. And the family that they did talk to had already seen it on the news. So they had found the remains in a rugged area about two to five miles from a dirt road. So it's two miles from the campsite, and then it's only a couple miles from a dirt road as well. Deputies and more than 100 searchers launched an extensive search of the area for additional bone fragments and articles of clothing, but found nothing. According to the coroner, the bones appeared to have been out there for about two years. 
and exposed to sun for about six months. He estimated that they belonged to a child between the ages of two and five. So Laura went missing in October 18, 1984. So that would be in the range of time. So the bones were sent to Cal State's anthropologist, Judy Succi, for further forensic testing. A sheriff publicly speculated that it was Laura and gave a theory, and this was his theory. She wandered away while her brother was using the bathroom. She stumbled, fell, and was buried in the sand. His theory was that coyotes or a mountain lion had recently dug up what was left. And shocking, you guys, this enraged Mike. He was worried that people would think the case was closed and stop looking for her. He said, to help find my daughter or just find out what happened if in fact she is no longer alive. I need people to care, he said. And here was someone telling people that it was over and that she had been found, end of story, no need to think about Laura Bradbury anymore. My God, it was just another blow, another way me and my family did not see eye to eye with the so-called authorities. So in May 1986, Patty wrote another letter to Laura. Laura, my baby, you are five today, and we are brokenhearted not to spend your birthday with you. Do you know it is your birthday? Are you being loved? Do you remember us? God can work miracles. I just fear that he won't. I want you to be a Girl Scout. I want to buy you dresses and take you to school and the beach and the cabin and sing happy birthday to you. How can you be five? You are still my sweet three-year-old. You can't have changed... Please hear me, baby. Please know we still love you, and we will always look for you. Please come home, Mommy. It's very sad. It's so hard, you guys. So by 1987, Mike had lost 40 pounds. He had ulcers and found himself slamming doors and punching walls. He was nearly broke from spending all the time searching for his daughter. He had purchased a nice computer and spent money running background checks on his own list of suspects. He had also hired a private detective named Jim Shallow who cost $30 a day and was a chain-smoking ex-army ranger with a Texas drawl. So the two of them came up with a lot of theories here. Child trafficking ring, devil worshippers, and that she'd been taken to a foreign country. Four days a week, Mike climbed into his beaten-up 1972 Volkswagen and drove the 120 miles to Joshua Tree National Park. Sometimes, him and Shallow donned army fatigues and ammunition belts and crawled across the desert spying with high-powered binoculars on anyone that they found. He became extremely paranoid and even thought his phone was bugged at one point. I also read that they put themselves in some pretty dangerous situations, trying to interview sketchy people, trying to get more information on sketchy people, running down leads and things like that. And also, I literally feel bad for my entire family if any of my children go missing, because I can guarantee you I'm not going to handle things much better. I mean, how do you stop looking? How do you let it go? How do you move on? How do you continue life? I mean, I don't know. I feel like that would be real bad for my family. In December of 1988, Alan Michael Stevens, in San Diego County, he was being held on bail after being arrested for strangulation of a woman and is a suspect in a string of murders. His bail was set at $250,000. Which actually seems kind of low to me for what they suspect he is responsible for. The district attorney announced that a group would be studying his movement and determining whether or not he was responsible for up to 39 
murders. Right. So basically they are convinced that this man is a serial killer and he starts getting looked into for all sorts of crimes. Yeah. And why, what does this have to do with our current case, you might ask? Alan Stevens was one of the people questioned during the investigation when Laura Bradbury went missing. And it gets better. He is also a known associate of the two witnesses that were shot and killed after coming forward saying they knew who was responsible. But at this point, police are now saying that they never talked to two people, even though they had said they deemed the tip not credible just a few years earlier. So now they're saying they never even talked to these two people. And this just adds to the conspiracy theory, right? I mean... So Alan's description does match the scraggly guy with the pot belly in the van. Police actually questioned Stevens in December of 1984 and in January of 1985. Yeah, and they did this because he was living in a van in the community of Joshua Tree. Police say that they are confident now and were confident then that Stevens had nothing to do with Laura Bradbury's disappearance. I mean, she doesn't really seem to be his type, but that doesn't mean he wouldn't be a crime of opportunity kind of guy. There's a lot of different reasons that somebody might kidnap a child. By 1989, the family was suffering. And can I just say, I applaud them for all sticking together at this point, even if they are suffering, because that is something that can be kind of rare when a tragedy happens in a family. Parents staying together and stuff, that usually doesn't happen. Absolutely not. I mean, it just breaks you and you end up falling apart, but they're still sticking it out. Emily, now five years old, has grown up in the shadow of this tragedy. She never knew her sister and her dad was practically a stranger now. Travis was a teenager. He slept in the bunk beds he once shared with Laura. He suffered from depression and felt guilty and admitted that he contemplated suicide as early as 12. For a long time, her pink blanket and doll remained on her bed. When Emily was six, she got separated from her mom for a minute. And by the time they were reunited, her mom was in a panic and shrieking frantically. So would I be. I mean, no, no. I can't. The family decided to move to Northern California. They needed a fresh start where they knew that no one knew them. Yeah, so they really tried to move on for their remaining children. They allowed few reminders of Laura. One was a bumper sticker on the back of their car with a picture of Laura that said, Help find Laura. And the family just couldn't bear to peel it off. Can't handle it. I can't handle it. I can't. And there's another letter. So, on May 29... 1990, Patty wrote, Today you are nine years old. I can hardly believe it, how time is swallowed up as if it never was. I still want to search kids out to see what a nine-year-old looks like and try to imagine my three-year-old who is frozen in time. Not having you has left holes in many places. I don't remember Emily's babyhood. When did she walk, talk? God, how unfair. My marriage is numb. Travis is deeply wounded. We have no home now. On that last night in Huntington Beach, I stayed late and the memories flooded the place. I remember you with Floppy and you and Travis in the sandbox and you in the crib, the new big girl, baby bed, Christmas, Easter's, so little time and how little did I appreciate it. I mean, it makes sense, but it's so... I think a lot of times when tragedies like this happen, 
people don't think about the long-term effects on every family member and that trickle effect as well. I mean, it's just awful. In 1990, new DNA tests said to prove that the skull was Laura's, with 99% likelihood of a match. In 2001, Laura's mom, Patty, dies. After she died, Mike had found her letters to Laura, the ones that we've been reading to you guys as the time goes on. Yeah, so these little letters and, and inserts that we've been reading, those are from the letters that Mike found after Patty died because she hadn't told anybody that she was writing them. And reading her letters actually made him start writing down his own thoughts. So the letter stopped in 1990, but he also found with the letters a white journal, and he thinks that she continued writing to Laura, but he could never bring himself to open the journal. But in 2010, Laura's dad, Michael, wrote a book called Laura Ann Bradbury, A Father's Search. And this book was inspired by him beginning to write down his own thoughts because he realized that must have been very therapeutic for her to be writing these letters to Laura and thought he'd kind of give it a try in his own way. So I actually tried to find a copy of this book. I think I talked about it at the beginning a little bit. The cheapest one I could find was $484.31 used on Amazon. And they went all the way up to $1,217.53. So why, why is this book so expensive? Does anybody know? Maybe there's only like 10 copies out there. I don't know. I would really like to read it though. If somebody has a copy of this book or knows where they might be able to find one, let us know because I could only find it on Amazon. Everywhere else I checked, it said that it was out of stock. So very bizarre. It doesn't seem to be anywhere. Couldn't find an audio version of it anywhere. It's just not available for some reason. Maybe that's part of the conspiracy. Yeah, they've tracked down all the versions of this book and it can't be found anymore because he probably writes very heavily against the police and towards the conspiracy theory. I would assume so. Michael Bradbury has been trying to bring his daughter home and the Bernardino County Coroner's Office has not issued a death certificate. So he has been unable to claim her remains or the skull and what they did find. Mm -hmm. He started to suspect that there was a problem with the DNA test and maybe it wasn't actually his daughter. In a 2010 article, he said he was shown about 40 color 35 millimeter slides of a skull and was astonished to find out it was a full-size skull about seven inches by five inches missing the teeth and lower jaw. He claimed that investigators had showed him a much different skull shortly after the hikers had discovered the remains. He said, my wife and I were shown a smaller three-inch skull cap in or around 1986 to 1987 that the sheriffs claimed was Laura's skull. He said the two skulls are totally dissimilar. They look nothing like each other. And he said, I wonder now what or whose skull they showed me then and why. If the one that they actually have now that they're showing him is Laura, what skull did they show him back then? Because it's a different skull. He also had a report on the test results showing that they were not conclusive. Only one of the four tests done matched Laura's mom's blood, but did not match the hair of Laura that they had. How could it be Laura's? Well, because it matched her mom's blood. But what he's saying is 
of all of those four tests, none of them matched Laura's DNA that they had on file. It only matched one of them, he thinks inconclusively, to Laura's mom's blood or DNA. So basically what he's saying is it's not accurate. It's not conclusive. It wasn't even matched with Laura's DNA. Yeah, it was matched with her mom's DNA. Right. This could also mean that they just didn't have enough DNA on the hairs for testing as well. I mean, I don't really know why that wouldn't have matched to the skull. But I think with the advancements that we have now, maybe somebody needs to take another look at this. Just to be sure. He really just wants closure for his daughter. And he thinks that if the skull is Laura's, that someone took her and put her back in the desert. He says that there was no way that she was in the desert there when they were searching. Yep. And officially, this case remains unsolved. And I think part of that is because no death certificate has actually been issued for Laura. Even though they're saying the DNA matches, this is definitely her, but they won't give him a death certificate. So then they probably don't know 100% sure. Right. So there might be something wrong with the DNA testing. And if this was a child's skull found in this spot, I would say the likelihood of it being Laura is probably really high. But if it's the larger skull that he's seeing in photos later on, then there might be some issues going on. Theories. Yep. So obviously there's the cover up, right? So were police covering up for somebody that possibly kidnapped and killed a little girl? I don't think so. However, is there a chance that they took liberties later to cover up some below par police work? Like maybe they never talked to those two witnesses, but they said, oh, there was no link. We checked it out. They weren't credible. Maybe they never talked to them at all. And so later on, they're covering their tracks, trying to backtrack on that. Or did some detective who didn't know what was going on misspeak at one of these two incidents to reporters, right? So I don't know. I think cover-up is probably unlikely as far as Laura goes. I'm not saying nothing was covered up later on, but as far as the actual missing little girl, I don't see cover-up on that. Abduction was obviously the first prominent theory. I still think that abduction is possible in this case. After the skull was found, it became that she wandered off and was buried in the sand. I'm going to go ahead and say that that definitely didn't happen. I don't think she wandered off and was immediately buried in the sand where nobody could find her. And then later her skull was dug up. Don't see it. However, this area does have mountain lions and this area does have coyotes. Is it beyond the realm of possibility that she's over here by the restroom? She tries to head back to the campsite for some reason and is snatched by an animal who runs off with her. And even if this is her skull that's found later on, is it possible that this skull ended up there because of flash flooding or because of an animal bringing it to that area rather than that's where she fell and that's where she was found? Yeah. Okay, so, I mean, we don't know. And then I'd also like to know if the footprints were really in the direction of where the skull was found. So if there were the two miles of footprints, like one account says, were those footprints going in the direction of where the skull was found? Did the dog track go in the direction of where the skull was eventually found? That would help me really firm up an opinion, I think. 
And if her body was there in that place, how did the helicopters not find her? She's only two miles. They searched everywhere. How was she not found if she just tripped in the sand and died? Yeah, and it was an area that had slightly rougher terrain, but it was within their search perimeter. She was wearing colorful clothing at the time of her disappearance. So they do say that dusk and dawn are the two most dangerous times to be attacked by a mountain lion. That's when they tend to hunt. She went missing around dusk. So could it be possible? I don't know. Coyotes have also been a problem in Joshua Tree National Park. There's been about 35 documented cases of coyotes attacking children in the last 25 years. All non-lethal, though. That's a lot. 35? Yeah. Doesn't it remind you of the dingoes? Let us know what you guys think about your theories on this case. We feel like there could be a lot of moving pieces. There could be a lot of alternative theories, but I also feel like we don't have all of the information. So that article that I was talking about that was in the Los Angeles Times, it was by Kurt Streeter. I think that's how you say it. And I found it on the Los Angeles Community Policing page. So if you want to read that or look into that, get more information. Mostly my information, though, came from random articles kind of all over the place. And let me know if you find the book. I want to read it. Maybe I want to read it more because I can't find it. It's really bothering me. Maybe. Uh. All right. So let us know what you think. I know this one was a little shorter, but last week's was a little longer. So hopefully that makes up for it. Remember, next week we will not be posting an episode. We're taking the week off to kind of catch up and get ready for next month. But we will be back the following Monday. Yes. But we're hoping we won't have to do this for much longer. We're hoping that kids will be back in school soon and that we will be able to pick back up with four weeks. We're just kind of playing it by ear right now. So hang in there with us, you guys. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at Lost in the Woods Podcast. Like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Yeah. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Okay. Also, you probably can just move this to the end, but I feel terrible because I don't remember your name now. And I don't, didn't ask anything because I was busy at work, but someone recognized my voice at my work. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. <laughs> but, um, I feel bad. I, I was, I was busy and didn't, wasn't able, it was. And we also know that Maddie doesn't have the best memory, so we no, can't really hold that it's against like, her. I think it's like, not Sierra, but something like that, I think. Not Sierra, but something like that. That's very <laughs> random. <laughs> That's what wants to come to my brain, but I don't trust my brain, so I don't think it's it. So what, she recognized you at work from our podcast, or? Yeah, recognized my voice. She was like, I know your voice. I, she was like, I know that voice. And I was like, oh, from where? And she's like, I listen to your podcast. I was like, no way. That's crazy. You I do didn't. have a very distinct voice, though. Yeah. Thank you for everybody that le- left us positive reviews yeah. this week or sent us nice messages and especially. Messages? messages did I say it weird yes you did and especially our listener that sent us the stickers that was great yeah, thank you so much we love them we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with them we haven't decided yet okay so apparently we need a place to put stickers 
Yeah, I mean, it really, it really does make a difference for us, you guys. I mean, we, we're not used to haters, and so when we get one, speak for yourself. I'm not used to it. So when we get one, I'm like, oh my gosh, this person is so mean. And Maddie's like, who cares? And I'm like, I do. Apparently, I was like secretly crying on the couch. And I'm like, mom, who cares? Okay, I don't really cry about it. But I find it hard to understand. I think if it I... doesn't make sense. People are just sad and lonely and decide that they're going to be mean to people on the internet for any reason. But I mean, we're we're very open to like constructive criticism. But when you're when you're we've got some rough ones lately well, about people just being like, "Don't like this. It's bad. Don't listen to it." I'm like, well, and when you can't when you're giving us criticism about something that we can't really change or something that's not even accurate, we're kind of like, "Wait a second, what?" But anyway, we really do appreciate our listeners that, you know, say nice things and send us messages and Thank tell their friends that. about us and share us on their stories. I mean, you guys are great. We have amazing listeners. So I'm working on getting over the bad ones. Maddie's fine either way. But we do appreciate you guys. You're amazing. Yeah, I was born in the era of social media. So maybe that's the problem is I didn't have social media until I was really a grown-ass adult, and so I don't, I didn't grow up with this anonymous being able to be mean to people, like, for when I was young, if you wanted to be mean to somebody, you had to do it to their face, or you had to leave them a nasty note in their locker or something, and now people can just say anything to anyone, and it's crazy. Yep. I don't like it, you guys. <laughs> Try going through middle school with social media. No, thank that you. That was rough. That was, no, bad things happened. Oh... It's like we just keep on doing it to I wanna ourselves. I want to do it. Though. I want to do it. I want to drink it. <laughs> it's so bad. It's so sour. So I have like this organic, all-natural cranberry juice. I love cranberry juice. Too. We both like cranberry juice, which I know is kind of weird. But this one's really, it's like the real cranberry juice, so it's not sweet. And it doesn't have grapes or raspberries mixed with it. It's like real cranberry. So it's really, really tart. And every time I take a drink, I like... I'm struggling a little bit with it. The same kind of feeling when you, like, it's so tart that it's, like, if you were to take, like, a shot and that same kind of, like, shock that your body goes into (laughs) is the same kind of thing because this shit's so sour. That's a good example. So I will probably add vodka to it later just to make it better. I mean, obviously. But I keep drinking it. And then Maddie started drinking it because it's sitting on the table here. And every time we both take a drink, we're like, oh, my gosh. And it's kind of traumatic, but yet we keep doing it. I don't know why. It's like me when I'm drinking. I keep doing it. I don't know why. It doesn't feel good. But Get I it away doing... from me. Get it away. No, vodka's going to tame that right out. Okay. <laughs> For you. For me. Okay. Not a vodka person. Mm, I love but I used to love tequila, and I'm just now getting to the point in my life where I can drink tequila again. See, I'm, <laughs> I have opened myself up to tequila. I still have not had a bad situation that involved tequila, so. Yeah, mine was real yeah. bad. Like, keys left on my front porch, not sure who drove my car home, but I know it wasn't me, kind of tequila night, so. And I had to go to work the next morning. And it took me 20 minutes to find my keys that were on the front porch and the front door was still partially opened. <laughs> Don't drink tequila. Patron shots. No. Just say no. 
Like, it's even the same head shake that you for, do. Yeah, for alcohol. That you do have mm-hmm. to take, like, a really strong shot that you weren't, like, prepared to take. Mm-hmm. Huh. Your shoes. Can we, just for, like, one second, talk about your shoes? You guys, I can't. <gasps> Molly I, already made fun of my shoes today at work. I literally, I do not understand. I have never seen shoes so disgusting, and I don't know how you can handle it. And did you run through... Uh, fuck, I don't even know. Like, a muddy field where you allowed just, your shoes to sink all the way in before pulling them back out again? I just... I a just marsh? drop a lot of... I drop a lot of stuff on my feet. Hold on, you guys. I'm going to take a picture of Maddie's shoes. I drop a lot of things on my feet So all the time at work. Constantly. No, you guys. She cannot explain this away. When you see the picture, I will post it on our story next week. I'll try to remember. Somebody remind me if we forget. I will post it on our story. They are literally the dirtiest shoes I've ever seen in my life. And she wore them to work today. I don't care. People don't see my shoes at work. Customers don't see my feet. They do. You're walking around. It's so gross, dude. I'm behind a counter the whole time. I still see people's feet. They're walking around getting stuff. I don't care. It's so gross. It's it's got to be unsanitary too. I feel like if the health department showed up, they'd be Tell like, "Feet, feet, that ground, nasty ground, girl food. needs to leave, ground. or I'm shutting you down." No. Maddie also rolled out of bed like at the time she was supposed to be at work today. <laughs> That's partly your fault. Okay. She was panicked and running out the door, definitely without her hairbrush. I'm not sure what she's wearing, and I can't really describe her outfit at this time. Um, I look like a pirate. She does, but. Um, partly your fault. She was like, I'll wake you up to record in the morning after the Zoom calls. Wait, wait. I said, I will wake you up if I have time to record after Phoenix's Zoom call. If not, we'll record after you get off work at three. I, I figured, I figured. That's not a, I'm going to wake you up no matter what. You no longer have to be an adult and be responsible for yourself. (laughs) I didn't set an alarm because I thought I was going to be woken up. Okay, let's. And also, wait, she did not work until 11 a.m. today. It was my one day to sleep in. I haven't slept in a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. Michael, or Mike, I'm just going to call him Mike because that's what he went by. What? <laughs> what even is that? Barbie dolls. I had to take two of our Barbie dolls away today because she threw them across the room when I put her in timeout. It was terrifying. I was like, I I walked back. So she went to timeout, which is pretty rare in the first place. So she went to timeout. It was an argument she had with Lulu. She went to timeout, right? And she's like screaming while in timeout, which she never does. Normally she's like very contrite and she's very upset when she does something wrong. So I open her door and I'm like, just so you know, your five minutes of timeout do not start until you stop screaming. And then I close the door and then all of a sudden I hear this crash and I open the door and I'm like, what was that? And she's like, nothing. And I'm like, you tell me what you did right now. And she was like, I threw my Barbies across the room. And so (laughs) she was so upset about it. So I went and I picked up her Barbies and I was like, these Barbies belong to me until you can learn to treat your things better. And then I walked out and I haven't given them back to her yet. And she hasn't even asked for them. And it's like, her Barbie that has the new dress on it that Auntie Hannah just gave her. I felt so bad. Oh. And she was like screaming while in timeout, which I don't, I've, I was like, 
Okay. I don't know. I was locked in my room once, one single time as a kid. I don't think I went to Thailand after that. No, I think for the most part, we, I, I've, I've always been like kind of a more strict parent, especially when it came to behavioral things. And so if something is done wrong, it's usually a, you do that again, you are going straight to timeout. And then that behavior becomes a non-negotiable timeout, no matter what, if you do it again. Yeah. But I would, every time my mom put me in timeout, I would just leave. I just, I would just leave. That's it. Hands down. I'd walk out. I would leave my room. Yeah, so, so then, I locked her door one time. We had, like, old these old skeleton keys. So I locked her door and stood right outside her door. I never actually left, but it was so that she couldn't open her door. And she lost it. Like, she lost it like I locked her in a dark closet that she couldn't get out of after beating her. And so after a few minutes, I, I kind of freaked out. And I was like, she's going to, like, hurt herself or she's going to have a panic attack or something. I fell asleep in an umbrella. And I went back in and she was sleeping in an umbrella. <laughs> and literally, I don't think I ever had to put her in timeout again. She, she wasn't naughty again until I was, she was a teenager. That is one of the memories I have. <laughs> and I was very, very young. And like we've said in other episodes, I don't have any memories from my childhood. But that is one of them. Oh, by the way, before I forget, I know this is totally off topic and I'll move it to the end. Had my first kindergarten Zoom meeting today, class meeting today, mm-hmm. where it was actually like their classroom. Mm-hmm. One, little kids are really bad at muting themselves in classroom settings. Two, they're also really good about unmuting themselves to interject their personal opinion in every little thing. So class was very sidetracked, a little un- unproductive. But at one point, and also kids pick their nose all the time. I mean, really, you're on camera, stop picking your nose. But at one point, this little boy was complaining to his dad, I think. And he was like, I can't do it. I can't sit here. It's too boring. And the dad's like, but you can do it when you're playing video games. <laughs> and their their mic is completely unmuted. Like the teacher's legit reading a story about a pigeon or something at the time that this happens. And I was like, oh, my God, mute your microphone. It was very painful and very entertaining. Also, I hate online school. Somebody rescue us. It's awful. I don't know. I'll go to work. I go to work. I ditch it. I don't have anything. It's awful, you guys. I, but we did it. I survived it. It was fine, kind of, but. It's only your first. It's only my first day. (laughs) Well, it's the first day with all the kids doing it, right? So. The older kids have been in school for about a week now, but the younger kids, they kind of did a more transitional thing into it. So they officially started today. And I understand why everybody online is talking about day drinking now. I get it. Before I was like, you guys, it's not that bad. Like, calm down. And now I'm like, hmm, what time is it? No, I actually came home the other day. <laughs> I came home no, the other day. No, don't tell that story. <laughs> the story's so funny, though. You can cut it out if you want. I came home at like, literally it was like 10 30 11 it was yeah it was it was like closer to 11 than 10 30 but it was still in the 10 o'clock range i came home i go on the back deck and my mother is drinking vodka (laughs) on the back deck at like 10 30 in the morning you guys it was that or kill one of my children i mean i was like mom is that vodka and she goes yep yep you have to make decisions sometimes that are hard and difficult and this was one of those days. And what was it? It was like a Monday or something. <laughs> I think it was Monday. 
Whatever it was, it was really funny. So that's about the time after the first round of Zoom calls before the second round of Zoom calls. Anyway, okay. So hopefully everybody else out there doing Zoom is having as much fun as me. And also drinking as much as me. I highly recommend it. So we recorded the beginning of this episode yesterday, last night, whatever. And then we paused because it was getting late. Halfway through recording an episode, I'm like, I've been sitting still for an hour. I can't do this anymore. But the good news is that Shedler's doing school today because I'm recording and it's not going well. (laughs) He made this noise earlier and Phoenix was like, Dad, why do you keep making that noise today? (laughs) And I was like, Phoenix... That's daddy's teacher voice <laughs> that he uses. That's him being frustrated. He's like, I want all of my taxpayer money back immediately. I will take cash. I will take a check. Whatever it takes. But this is done. I mean, I remember Cordelia when she was about three years old, she decided that she was going to cut off her own hair. So she had Dude, long... it was like a It was like a murder scene through a house. <laughs> like, except instead of blood, it was like splotches hair. of hair. So she had hair... All the way down her back. Long hair, like Maddie's is now. So she had really long hair, and she got a hold of a pair of scissors, and she cut as far back as she could reach on both sides and left, like, this tail in the back. And then she also cut these giant chunks, just to make sure I couldn't salvage her hair, out of, like, the front of her hair. She literally looked like a boy for years. Yeah, my dad actually called her her, his little boy. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure she doesn't have mental issues from that. But she also chopped off the hair of every Barbie doll in the house at the time as well. We found her hiding in the closet with the scissors. and Not even the closet of her bedroom either. Someone (laughs) else's bedroom. Just to let you know how much hair was all over the house. It was like she was walking around the house leaving this trail of carnage behind her. And she just heard somebody coming, ran into the closest closet she could find and hid. And as soon as we opened the closet door, she was already crying because she knew she was in trouble. (laughs) I never cut my hair. Nightmare. No, she's the only one that ever did. I mean, me and my friends, when we were really little, we'd, like, cut a strand off our hair and, like, ah. Naughty, yeah. Harder? Mm Mm-hmm. And wilder? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Her dad That's how he's described. I can't change how he's described. I I, I don't know. I just... I don't like it, but I'll say it. There's something I don't like about it. There's something I don't like about saying it, but I'll say it. Okay. still don't like it. I don't like the harder description. I, I don't like it. Like, a harder person. Like, that. It, it's a, a common description that people my use. My brain just goes straight to someone being hard, to he's hard. That's yeah, it. That's, that's it. That's all my brain. That says more about you than it does maybe, about the description. Maybe it does, <laughs> but I don't like it. I don't like it. 